You're listening to episode 136 of the Tennis Files podcast. Functional training principles with Mike Boyle. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top coaches, pros, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have a fantastic guest on the show, Mike Boyle. And Mike is one of the most world-renowned experts in the fields of strength and conditioning, functional training, and general fitness. In 1996, he co-founded Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, which is located in Woburn, Massachusetts, which is uh, a few miles outside of Boston, a lovely place, and uh, his mission is to provide performance enhancement training for athletes of all levels. He has worked with some incredible teams. He uh, served as the head strength and conditioning coach at Boston University for about 15 years, and then for the past 25 plus years, uh, he's been the strength and conditioning coach for men's ice hockey at Boston University. He also was the strength and conditioning coach in 2013 for the Boston Red Sox that won the World Series, and he served from 91 to 99 as the SNC coach for the Boston Bruins of the NHL. He's also worked with the 1998 U.S. Women's Olympic ice hockey team uh, and also the 2014 uh, silver medalist in Sochi and the gold medalist in Nagano as well. Just an incredible resume that we have from Mike. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, crazy accomplishments and and, uh, wonderful teams that he's coached. Uh, And he was actually mentioned by two of my former guests, Dr. Sean Drake and and Dr. Greg Rose from TPI slash Racket Fit. Um, They had mentioned Mike as somebody that I had to get on the show. And if you remember from uh, the mega fitness episode that I produce a couple episodes back, um, which I think is one, episode 134, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think on both of those clips from those two guys, they mentioned principles from Mike Boyle. So I figured I had to get him on and I uh, replied to or sent an email to Mike and he was so gracious to lend me his time. So we're going to cover some really great areas for you to help you level up your game uh, of course, you know, strength and conditioning principles, uh, the importance of mobility and how to uh, enhance your mobility um, to perform better and feel better. Uh, we cover uh, posture, injury prevention, uh, the huge importance of warming up and what, you know, what specifically you should do to warm up and a lot of other great and very interesting principles uh, surrounding strength and conditioning and functional training for tennis. So uh, I really hope that you enjoy this episode and that you've also been uh, working on your game, trying to improve every single day. 
and I think you'll really enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Mike Boyle. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have Coach Mike Boyle on the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, He is one of the foremost experts in the fields of strength and conditioning, functional training, and general fitness. And he's just worked with a multitude of uh, amazing teams, uh, the highest levels that you can imagine uh, in in various sports. And so we're going to talk today about uh, obviously strength and conditioning and functional training and and whatnot. And so, Mike, I uh, really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. No problem. I, I really enjoy doing these, to be honest. I love these little conversations. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, it's great to hear. And it's kind of funny because I, I put together like this mega fitness episode where I went through all the different podcasts that I made regarding fitness. And then I listened to a couple of them, uh, one by uh, Dr. Sean Drake and another by Dr. Greg Rose, both from uh, TPI and, and Racket Fit. And then they both mentioned on the show that they had learned a lot from you, Mike. So I figured, you know, what the heck, let's let's do our best and try to bring you on. And, you know, uh, really happy to have you. So uh, how is uh, life in uh, Massachusetts treating you these days? Life in Massachusetts is wonderful, actually. Business is great. I have I have no complaints at all. My family's healthy and happy and business is good. So you can't ask for much more. And knock on wood, that's the most important. Fantastic. Uh, and, and so your uh, Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, your facility is in Woburn, Massachusetts, right? So that's a, like a few miles outside of Boston? Yeah, we're about 20 minutes north. Woburn is 20 minutes north of Boston. So it's funny. We're really kind of like your neighborhood sports performance guys in the sense that uh, there's so many people now doing this. We used to be years ago when we started, 23 years ago, people would travel really significant distances to get to us. But the Boston area is so filled with similar type facilities that people will tend to choose convenience maybe over quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you the quality is so important. I mean, it can make a huge difference between your, you know, for your performance and your your livelihood and health. So I uh, definitely want to seek out the best like yourself, Mike. So, uh, you know, before we launch into a bunch of questions regarding, you know, exercises and recovery and mobility and so forth, I wanted to kind of get into the mind of, uh, of uh, a genius like yourself and ask you, you know, how did you actually become, you know, this this expert in, in this field of, uh, of, of fitness and SNC and so forth. It's interesting. So I went to Springfield college with the idea that I was going to be an athletic trainer and strength and conditioning. Now you have to realize you're talking now to somebody who's 60 years old and in about his 39th year of actively coaching. So it didn't really exist. It was just, there was just maybe a little inkling of, kind of Boyd Epley and some guys had started to do this in Nebraska. Uh, And I just thought this would be the coolest thing ever to be able to combine what I thought was going to really be my, my love athletic training with a love of, you know, sort of recreationally, I had become a competitive power lifter. So I really enjoyed the weight room and I thought, wow, imagine a field where you could combine those two things together. This is just the greatest thing that's ever happened. So I started out, I went to Boston University for my first job in, I think, 1983, January of 83, if my memory serves me correctly, and um, started as an athletic trainer there and realized after about four months that that was not what I wanted to do, that I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. So I quit my full-time job, 
And I literally walked across the hallway because the weight room was across the hallway and was pretty much uninhabited. No one really used it. There was occasionally some football players in the afternoon. And mostly at that time, it was coaches hanging around and they're working out themselves. And I just kind of set up shop. I was sort of like, hey, here I am. I'm your new strength coach, your volunteer strength and conditioning coach. And uh, I'm going to help you out. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then uh, eight years later, you're uh, SNC coach for the, the Bruins of the NHL. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Eight years later, I'm the strength coach for the Bruins. But I was still at Boston University because then even the NHL teams, they had a lot of a lot of teams had not gotten to the point yet where they were hiring full time people. So I actually at that time, I mean, I guess 90, I think 90 or 91 was my first season with the Bruins. And uh, I was basically doing two jobs. I was the Bruins strength and conditioning coach. So I'd go there in the morning for practice and warm the guys up and work with whoever the injured guys were during practice. And then sometime around, depending on traffic, I'd leave around 11, drive to BU, open the weight room, work at the weight room at BU from 12 to 7. Mm -hmm. And then at 7... I would either, if there was a BU game, I'd go to the BU game. And if there was a Bruins game, I would drive back to Boston Garden, the old garden, and uh, then work with players, again, whoever was hurt, people that weren't dressed, whatever, guys that, you know, healthy scratches. And usually stay at the garden till 11 at night. So I was working from probably 8 in the morning till 11 at night a lot for quite a while. Wow, really grinding out there, Mike. So uh, what are a couple of things that you did? Because I think this, you know, anyone could benefit from this uh, answer, you know, even non-coaches. Like what what are a couple of things you did that you'd say accelerated your learning and, and progression in, in this field that you're in? You know what? I think probably the thing I did the, the best was I started to develop a network. Mm. I was always, I think one of the problems in strength and conditioning and a lot of times in coaching in general is that people's egos get in the way. Very difficult for people to look and think that they're not the expert. And I just was very open to the idea that, hey, I'm going to I'm going to read. I'm going to learn. I was always a big reader. I read, you know, I was one of these kids who I couldn't wait for the latest muscle and fitness or strength and health or Iron Man or whatever it was to get on the shelves, because then you had to go to a store like a magazine place and buy these magazines. And that was how you got your information, because no one there was no Internet and there was very little that was written that was in libraries. And what you were getting was coming out monthly in these different muscle magazines. You know, Iron Man was, uh, you know, kind of a, a little bit bodybuilding oriented, but maybe not as um, commercial as muscle and fitness, which the weeders were just starting. And uh, strength and health was more Olympic lifting oriented. And then another one, Powerlifting USA used to come out, which was actually, if you can imagine, mimeographed. You may not even know. I don't know how old you are, but you may not even know what. But imagine <laughs> having photocopies <laughs> delivered to you. That's about what mm. Powerlifting USA was initially. But, uh, you know, I read and I I contacted people whose stuff I read. I went and visited other people and said, hey, you know, you know, tell me about this, whether it was, you know, whether it was speed development or, you know, whatever it was. And uh, And I've always stayed that way. It's interesting. I'm reading Range right now. I don't know if you've read Range, David Epstein's book, but uh, it's his second book. He wrote Sports Gene first, and he talks about the idea that you have to have range. You have to be a really good generalist. And as a strength and conditioning coach, and even a lot of times, think as a tennis coach, you've got to be a really good generalist because if you're a tennis coach, you're a lot of times you are the strength coach and you are the athletic trainer and you are the speed development guy and you are 
in charge of teaching tennis. So you're doing all, you're wearing all these hats and uh, Epstein talks about this idea of being a T person. So if you can think of it, you know, the top of the T is very broad. And one of the things that I talked about was to be a really good T person, the, the converse of the T is the I person, someone who goes very far and very deep in a very singular type of area. And so I realized, one, I'm a T person, but the key to being a good T person is to find those really good I people, to be able to find the great speed development guy and find the great strength development guy and find the guy who understands agility. So I was just, I was just always out there trying to, trying to learn and I never, I, or at least I tried to not let my ego get in the way. I would not say I never let my ego get in the way, but I tried to not let it get in the way. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. Yeah, that's so huge. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when you go on forums or, or whatnot, you see coaches say, oh, you know, that's that's how it's been done and, and everything. And it's important to always evolve and and whatnot like you've been doing over the past four decades, almost four decades. So uh, very impressive stuff. Uh, Mike, if you could frame your approach to functional uh, training, and by the way, there's a you know you wrote a book on new functional training for sports. If you could frame your approach to uh, to functional training in, in a few sentences, what would you say, or how would you frame it? I would say that it's training based on the science of functional anatomy. Now that so there's <clears throat> there's sort of two views of anatomy. View one is what we would call dead person anatomy. And that's what you learn a lot of times in school and you learn that the quadricep extends the knee and the hamstring flexes the knee. And then mm -hmm. there's this idea of functional anatomy or what I would call live person anatomy. And you realize that what the muscle would do if you sort of pitted it against some machine is clearly not what it does in function. And so you start looking at that, whether it's the lower body muscles or the core muscles or the rotator cuff or whatever they are, you start to realize that these, from a functional anatomical standpoint, all of these muscles have jobs that they have to do. And it's, I always use the lower body as an example. When I put my foot on the ground, every muscle in the lower body has the same function. They prevent my ankle, my knee, and my hip from flexing. They basically stop me from falling down. They stop me from smashing my knee into the ground. And, uh, you know, they don't, nothing is extending the knee or flexing the knee or extending the calf or dorsiflexing. None of that stuff is happening. All you're getting is this simultaneous reaction to keep you where you are. And when you push off, the same thing happens. All those muscles act to move you forward. And again, they act in concert as a group. So we started looking at this and thinking, wait a second, if this is how the body works, why are we doing all these stupid little isolative exercises, you know, bicep curls and tricep press downs and leg extension, and leg curls, even the idea of leg pressing, you know, I used to always joke that if you're, if you're lying down on your back, pushing up, you probably suck at some sport, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's like just, you know, not a position you really want to be in. And so you just start thinking about the ideas of function, being on your feet, being in standing. And, and that was sort of the genesis of the whole thought process. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to use machines and then graduate through learning through all the experts that I've interviewed and reading and so forth. You know, there's so many better dynamic exercises that, that obviously we, we need to be doing in order to, to uh, accelerate our, our fitness and, and movement. So um, I'm going to ask you a bunch of uh, tennis specific <laughs> questions or, and we'll try to get through them. But as far as like tennis players thinking about um, you know, what they do on the court, what areas of the body would you say tennis players should concentrate the most on, on developing to be successful? 
It's interesting. I, I wouldn't say any specifically that because when you think about tennis, obviously you've got a tremendous lower body component. Mm -hmm. You've got a tremendous, you know, lateral movement yes. component. You're moving forward, backwards, side to side. So obviously lower body musculature makes a really big difference. You've got a massive core component because it's a, it's a rotational power sport. You've got a huge um, upper body component because of the nature of serving. So you kind of start looking and thinking, what should they concentrate on? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it, and they should be on the same kind of broad-based program that every other athlete is on because they've got all of these kind of interrelated tasks that they need to do, in none of which really if you looked at it and said, what's more important? Is it more important to have a great serve than it is to be able to, to, you know, to move you know, from sideline to sideline? And I think most people would tell you, no, is it important, you know, to have better ground strokes? No, I mean, the people that are great at tennis possess all of these things and they possess, and this is what's interesting in range, the book I'm reading, they possess generally a high degree of athleticism. Yeah. And uh, in range, the, the first chapter in range is contrasting Tiger Woods to Federer and talking about how Federer was the ultimate generalist and didn't even really love tennis and that his parents, he talked about the parents being pullers versus pushers and contrasting it to sort of Tiger's dad, who was kind of a pusher and, you know, pushed the kid along, pushed the kid along. And they talked about how Federer's parents kind of had to pull him along a little bit and pull him out of some other areas. And, and eventually he kind of found his way into tennis. And that's very unlike what we think of the model because it, that's not the tennis model. The tennis model is take a kid, whether he's a good athlete or a bad athlete, get him to put a lot of hours on the court at a very, very early age and hope that he can kind of outstrip his peers at that point. But that's probably not the formula for the real high level of success. Yeah, great points there. I mean, uh, there's so many tennis uh, professionals that I that I know where they, they played a bunch of other sports uh, when they were younger and really developed their athletic prowess. And I mean, when you think of all the top players, they're all just incredible athletes, like you said. So... Got an interesting question from uh, Venton, and I know that you, you know, you, you coach the the Red Sox for a bit, uh, and this is important, you know, obviously the serve that we mentioned, and so um, his question is, what exercises can be applied simultaneously for throwing a baseball faster and also obviously having a bigger serve? Again, I'd go back to all of them. <laughs> uh huh. Mm -hmm. That's what's interesting is that it's funny because everybody's looking for the specific answer when there really isn't a specific answer. So, you know, if we looked at, okay, again, you know, the ability to, to serve is really a big, like pitching, it's a huge force summation activity. Mm -hmm. And where you've got to, whether it's the ball in your hand or the ball, you know, being hit by the racket, you've got to be able to create this incredible application of force sort of you know, going up, going forward in rotation. And you start looking and say, well, what's responsible for that? And the answer is everything. Your legs are responsible for that. Your core muscles are responsible for that. Your upper body is responsible for that. There's nothing that you could look at and say, oh, do this, and that will make this better. And I think that's the problem that we get into just in, in training in general and the whole application, the idea of functional training, all these things, is that we have everybody um, – Everybody's looking for the secret. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a, a, a saying that I love. It said, you know, don't concentrate on learning the tricks of the trade, concentrate on learning the trade. And I think 
what you end up with, people are constantly looking for, okay, what's the trick? What's the hack? What's the cheat? Instead of looking and saying, wait a second, you, know, you want to get somebody better at tennis, it's unfortunately the same way you get people better at everything else. And I talk about that all the time. If you came to my gym and watched our athletes train, I would be able to point out to you and say, okay, this is the best women's lacrosse player in the world. That's the best women's ice hockey player in the world. That guy's a major league pitcher. This guy's one of the best uh, you know, uh, in the top 10 scoring in the National Hockey League. And if you watched everybody, the thing people come away with all the time is they always walk away and think they're all kind of doing the same thing though. Like where's all the, where's all the specific stuff? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there isn't any specific stuff. We don't do, you know, I always say the specific stuff is called practice and tennis more than anybody get tennis gets way too much practice. If somebody said to me, okay, I get a chance to remake tennis. One of the first things I'd do is put a limit on number of hours they could be on the court. Would be my very first. Like if I took over a tennis academy, I would tear it up on, on age, and I'd say, okay, you know, if we've got whatever, you know, U tens, you can't have more than you know, you have a max of five hours a week, and that has that's only if it's five days a week, one hour a day. You can't have any practices more than an hour, and and I would tear those hours up in very small amounts as the kids got older, and I would be really working on their general athleticism and their strength and their ability to to kind of run and jump and do all of these sort of non-tennessy things because, and I talk a lot about this just in general in my talks, but uh, adults or the, the insertion of adult values into youth activities is a real problem because for us to be good at something as adults, we need to focus and concentrate. And kids, again, it goes back to the, the Epstein thing, you know, and it's an app, you know, it's a very applicable book to be reading at this time, but it gets back to the range idea. It gets back to this idea of, of being a good generalist. That kid who's going to be a true elite is, is going to be a good generalist in the beginning. That kid's probably going to be good at multiple sports. And that kid probably is going to have to be choosing much like Federer did. Hey, do I want to be a tennis player or do I want to be a soccer player? Or do I want to be a hockey player? Like that's the person who's going to, to ascend to the top level not somebody who gets sort of robotically thrown into one of these academies at, at eight. <clears throat> but they, and there are a lot of those kids and they are only because in tennis, there's not as much competition. It's, you know, again, we get these sort of, uh, you know, socioeconomic stratification of sport Yeah. and tennis, you know, you think about tennis and golf. Well, if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be playing tennis and golf, chances are pretty good that you've got to be a country club kind of family. You've got to have a membership and you've got to have a place to play. It's not in, in general, you will not see lots of low income tennis programs, much the same way you won't see low income golf. And we're seeing that in the Northeast. Hockey is becoming that way. Lacrosse is becoming that way. There, um, there's a clear kind of stratification of sport based on money. Yeah, Mike, a lot of great points in there. And for sure, I mean, I know, you know, a lot of great talents who unfortunately had to cut their careers short because they simply didn't have the funds uh, to do that. But, you know, b- back to the beginning of, of what you said, too, I mean, uh, in terms of there's no magic answer, you know, I, I talked to Dr. Mark Kovacs, who's the uh, director of uh, sports science, I think, for the Cavs now. But, yeah, you know, it, it, it's pretty much all these strokes that we have are a like, kinetic chain. And so you've got to really have every every single part of it uh uh, under wraps, otherwise it's, it's one. If one part breaks down, then you won't have a maximum force produ- uh, production. But um, you know, that being said, I was curious to to ask you because um, one specific area that I think a lot of tennis players 
have a problem with me included is is the racket drop so um i'm sure you're familiar with that part but i think you know it could be maybe a shoulder mobility issue or something like that and also mentally a lot of players i think they want to get the serve in right so then they don't you know they don't drop the racket enough uh because they just want to hit the ball in so do you have any tips uh or any like exercises to specifically work on uh, shoulder mobility slash racket drop, uh, that, that type of area for tennis players? Most tennis players probably have too much shoulder mobility to begin with. It would be unusual. I think the biggest thing, and that's where I think we start to interrelate practice to strength and conditioning. I would look at that and say, just do the normal things that you need to do to keep your upper body strong mm-hmm. and then do a better job of practicing and do a better job with your on-court stuff and don't, I think we can really get into problems when we try too hard to cross over. I think it's very simple, okay, let's get, let's get stronger, let's get more powerful, and then let's go practice with a really good quality coach who can help me to work on the things that I need to work on. Let's not, like I said, and I think so many of the, the coaches are kind of tinkerers. And they're trying to figure out, like, you know, again, it's all this, you know, what I would call sports-specific bullshit. They're trying to, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we'll put a band on the racket or we'll use a heavier racket. It's like, just, you know, when it's time for tennis, play tennis. When it's time for strength and conditioning, do strength and conditioning. Don't worry about how one crosses over to the other and you'll be much better off. Again, you know, you said you had Greg Rose on. Mm-hmm. That's what's happened with golf. Charlie Weingroff makes fun of. Uh, some of the exercises he calls them golfish exercises. He said, "Oh, that's golfish," <laughs> and you know somebody will like attach a golf club to a cable machine or something stupid like that, and it's like, like that's just not really how it works. You're much better off just again being that good generalist. Get your strength up, and then worry about those things. The one thing you do have to worry about the big parallel between baseball and tennis, and I think. Baseball and tennis, volleyball and tennis, swimming and tennis. We we classify all those athletes as overhead athletes, and we realize that we need to pay a little more attention to the shoulder complex. We need to pay a little more attention to the rotator cuff. We need to make sure because, again, tennis players get into trouble with shoulder health because they play too much tennis. They serve too many balls. And years ago, I wrote um, I wrote an article called Does It Hurt? And it's the probably the simplest article in the world, but one of the best that I've written because it's the basic idea of, you know, should I do X? Does it hurt? Nope. Okay, then you can do it. And if someone says, oh, it hurts when I do that. Okay, we're not going to do that right now. And it's amazing how many people violate basic rules where somebody's out there serving. You know, my shoulder's a little sore. Well, then we shouldn't be serving. Let's let that tissue rest. Because when we think about rotator cuff tendonitis, rotator cuff tendonitis, the, the analogy I always use, it's like, Rubbing a big heavy raw, a rope against a rock. Mm-hmm. If you do it enough times, you're going to work your way through the rope. Right? If you do it once or twice, you don't even notice any of the fibers are torn in the rope. But if I just said, "Hey, go outside," I'm going to give you this big rope, like the you know the battle ropes that people use in the gym, and I'm going to give you a big rock and say, "Just start rubbing." The more you rub, the more of those little fibers you break down, and eventually you look and think, "Oh, I got a little crease." In the rope now, I'm starting to break it down. That's shoulders. That's rotator cuffs. And if people would just leave things alone, the nice thing is that the shoulder will repair 
where the rope won't, you know, the rope won't regenerate itself, but the shoulder will. But if you keep rubbing that injured area over and over again, eventually it, it loses its ability to regenerate itself. It becomes fibrotic and, you know, tendonotic. So, and that's where a lot of tennis players get themselves in trouble because there's just, there's this idea that the more hours I put into it, the better I will be. And I think that's a, I think that's a fundamental mistake in a lot of sporting activities that gets people in trouble. Then it becomes a survival. The most resilient tissue will be the one who does the best because they can tolerate the most hours of training. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Very, very sage advice there, uh, Mike. And, and one thing that you said, which I heard from, uh, again, <laughs> Sean and Greg, uh, and, you know, apologies if I misquote you, but they basically said that you mentioned that after the age of 40, the percentage of time that you should spend on training mobility should should equal your age. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain why that uh, why that's the case. Well, I think the basic idea is that we lose – when we think about it, I actually wrote an article the other day called Good Squatters, Bad Runners. And um, mm. people always talk about the idea of babies are very, very mobile, right? When you look at a little baby, little babies can put their feet in their mouth, they can put their feet behind their head, but they're really crappy walkers, right? And what we find as we get on our feet and we gain the ability to move around, we lose mobility. Our mobility, we, there's a... There's a natural trade-off in life, I think, of stability for mobility or mobility for stability. And as we get older, that gets worse and worse because now we get someone who's spending, generally speaking, multiple hours of the day seated. And it's almost, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. He's one of the kettlebell guys and I wish, um, I wish I could quote him exactly and give you his name because one of the things that he said is, Life is a battle against turning to cement. And, and if you think that, you know, uh, mobility work is the water that you can keep adding. If you ever notice, if you make, if you ever made mixed cement or tile grout or anything like that. I haven't, no. <laughs> well, if one thing you'll realize is if you leave it alone, it just hardens. But if you keep stirring and keep adding water, it'll stay workable the whole time. And that's the body. If we keep adding water and adding motion and adding mobility work, the body will stay pretty mobile. I, I have all these analogies that I use, but I love that. I tell people, everybody, life is basically the process of moving from uh, filet mignon to beef jerky. <laughs> and, you know, that's, uh, um, that's the reality. As we get older, we get, you know, you think about your body as beef jerky and it's crusty and dehydrated and brittle and 
think about the young kid, you know, the, the young tennis player that you get maybe at 12 years old is perfect filet mignon. They've got nothing wrong with them. And then we start that process of trying to screw that up as rapidly as we can <laughs> you know, by, by pounding the filet. Like, okay, I'm going to beat the shit out of this, you know, <laughs> as many hours as I can a week with the idea that when I'm done, it'll be better. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if when you're done, it's better. And, and that's where we lose. Like I said, I think you lose a large percentage of kids to either, either overuse injury or a combination of overuse injury and the, you know, the psychological torture that is the hours and hours that are spent on the court. And then the coaching side is going to say, you need to do that. If you want to be good, you need to do it. And I'd be like, go back and read range and look and think Federer was not doing it. Yeah. We're definitely going to have all these, uh, sources that you mentioned on the, on the show notes page, uh, for everybody. And, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of which, you know, of mobility, you know, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of people in the world who are eventually going to be hunchbacks because of, uh, because of their phones and whatnot. And so I was wondering how much posture plays into, uh, and really impacts, uh, our sports performance. Uh, and if you could maybe speak to that. I think posture plays a huge part. There's no question. Like I said, you think, I mean, we now have, you know, text neck, where people are, you know, are going to the doctor and they're like, yeah, they've got, you've got text neck mm-hmm. from having your head jutted out forward for so long. And if you think about this, and again, I said, I, I'm an analogist if an analogist is a thing, but uh, we're sort of trying over time. We return to the fetal position. If you look at old people, they, they're starting to curl up. Right. Mm-hmm. And you look, and like I said, hunchback forward head, all these things, these are all combatable things. If you looked at me now at 60, I'm still pretty upright. I don't have a forward head. I don't have a lot of these things because I've been up on my feet working, you know, literally like working with my body, with my hands my whole life. Whereas you might look at other people who are my age and say, oh, that guy's 60 and he's been sitting in an office for eight or 10 hours a day for the last 30 years. And he's probably going to look significantly older than I am in every way. And one of those ways will be posture. So I think that posture is a huge piece of the puzzle. But I also think we probably don't need to worry about it in general until I, I would, I'm going to just to toss a number out there. I'd say in your 30s, when somebody suddenly becomes desk bound or relatively permanently seated, that's where you've got to be concerned about that. And so, Mike, what are I know there's probably like eight billion exercises out there, but what are a few uh mobility exercises that your athletes commonly perform that you think would transfer over um, really well to, to tennis and they could be, you know, about any particular body part that you think would, I mean, they all are important. So any, any particular exercise, the big ones are any of sort of your, your lunge type stretches, which again, you need to be careful that you do it correctly because again, some people, one of the things that I'm a, Big believer. A lot of the good stretches came from yoga, but they're not yoga. So I would not recommend. I don't not making a recommendation that people do yoga at all because I'm not a yoga fan. But if people are familiar with yoga and think about things like pigeon and warrior one and uh, airplane and things like that, those are all really good stretches that you're going to look at. We might call it a one leg straight leg deadlift or a leg lower, and some other people might call it a Spider Man stretch. Mark Verstegen calls it world's greatest stretch. Uh, you know, and they're all different variations of kind of lunge type positions. Those are, I think the big ones. And then lateral squatting. So the ability to kind of be 
in a big standing V position and to be able to sit the hips from side to side, that's going to be really important. Pigeon, which is another yoga position, the ability to kind of get your your hips. Uh, some people would, you know, 90-90 is a variation of pigeon that you might see from uh, from some people. But those to me would be the big ones. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that, Mike. So speaking of hips, uh, that's a, a huge problem area. I mean, I tend to have some hip pain myself. But, uh, you know, if you have an athlete who has um, – hip pain. I mean, what's, what's a common protocol and, and also like, you know, uh, recovery methods for that? Well, hip pain one, we're very specific about how we warm up. So when we warm up, so again, if, you know, if, again, if I'm the tennis coach, mm-hmm. then warm up is definitely not get the racket and go out and start hitting the ball back and forth over the uh, net. Mm-hmm. Warm up is going to be, we always foam roll. We always static stretch, and then we always do some type of dynamic warm-up. So we're going to go through that sequence. So if I'm running a tennis academy or I'm coaching a tennis player, those things are all going to be done racketless. When that person is then done with all of that, then it's going to be time like, okay, now we can pick up the racket, and now we can start working on whatever, you know, ground strokes, baseline stuff to, to get warmed up and get ready to go maybe before we get into serving. But I think – Part of the problem, again, that people get into is they just don't they don't do their homework. They don't do a good job. They don't look and, and they, they go back to what their coach did <clears throat> or the way it's always been done. Those are always um, famous things that we hear all the time. Well, that's the way it's always been done. And I think, who cares if that's the way it's always been done? Right. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, you could be a covered wagon person or an airplane person. And at some point in the 1800s, People would say the way to get to California was covered wagon. And some would look and go, yep, that's the way it's always been done. And if we went by that's the way it's always been done, we would still be on the, you know, whatever, you know, like the Lewis and Clark expedition going over, you know, trying to figure out where we pass through the Rocky Mountains instead of thinking, hey, I can actually get there in six hours now on a plane. But in sport, so much we look at like, ah, airplane, that's bullshit. You know, this is the way we always did it. And there's, I mean, there's so many people who are still in that, like you have to be able to know when does the, um, whatever the scientific change, the technological change become so much to our benefit that we have to look and think, okay, the old way is no longer good. And in sport, we are very, very slow, very resistant to, to change. Or sometimes when we want change, it was like, you talk, we want hacks, we want you know, what about technology? You know, what if I get a heart rate monitor? What if I get a catapult system? It's like, I always look at people like, do you have a good strength and conditioning program? Do you have a good warm up? Do you weight train twice a week? Do you know, are there, are there these basic things that you're doing? You know, again, here's a great one in tennis. The thing I, people always, there are still people doing distance running for tennis. You know what I mean? Which I'm, I just look and think, yeah, how can right. you not have the, the requisite scientific knowledge to have broken down a tennis match. Tennis is really interesting in the sense that I think I saw, and I might be wrong, but I'm not that wrong. Like a five hour tennis match mm-hmm. might consist of 15 minutes of tennis in some situations. It's definitely a lot less than five hours. I'll give you that. Yeah. It's a lot less than an hour. Yeah. 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 Over yeah. five hours. So when you start thinking, so in general, the rest to work ratio could be anywhere from five to one to 10 to one. Right. And there's no continuous activity at all. If you start look, because in all this stuff is readily out there. Anybody that wants to find it, I can go on the internet right now. If you gave me five minutes, and I could pull up all the 
tennis bioenergetics, but you know, how long the average point is, how much rest there is between points, you know, all these things. And it's not hard yet. We still have people running people for 30 minutes. And you kind of look at that and think, how can you do that? How can you be that ignorant that you can't even watch your own game and look at the game and think, wait a second, you know, the, the average point, five seconds, seven seconds, maybe. Yeah. Why would you need somebody who can run for 30 minutes? And they're, cause they gotta be in shape because the match takes five hours. And I'm like, yeah, but if they play tennis every day anyway, and then they end up in a situation where, you know, in addition, they're doing some sort of extra conditioning on top of the tennis that they're already playing. Why would that encompass distance running? It's just, it's nonsensical. And it, we do it in every sport where we get into these nonsensical things that, and it's a lot of times it comes down to, well, that's the way it's always been. We always, you know, my coach had us run, you know, I was a great runner or whatever. And, you know, I was always in shape at the end of the match. It's like, those things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, it's it's a huge point there, Mike. I appreciate that. And yeah, and just just uh, looking at it, uh, there's one study that they did where only 17% or so of the match was spent playing tennis, but I'm sure some are even less than that. So, Mike, you know, one practical question. We have a lot of uh, listeners here who are like adult rec players. They play in like USCA club matches, and obviously, you know, they have families and whatnot but so let, let's let's give the hypothetical of somebody who has three to four hours excluding tennis per week to train um given the, the different types of um you know traits that we can train and different types of training i mean how would you roughly program those three to four hours uh per per week i would if someone said to me three to four hours if they said three I'd say three total body strength and conditioning sessions a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, organized very much in the way that I talked about in terms of foam rolling, stretching, dynamic warm up, and then a good total body strength program with maybe a little bit of extra work on the, on the rotator cuff area. And then if you said, okay, I've got a fourth hour, I'm all right, okay, maybe I'd get four 15 minute interval workouts a week of some type. And if I was an adult, I would almost make sure that those workouts were almost exclusively stationary bike workouts, things where I'm not on my feet, not pounding. Because again, mm -hmm. most of the tennis players, adult tennis players, I, I actually have a few pretty good adult tennis players that I've worked with in my career. I have a couple that are still at our facility right now training. And again, mm -hmm. they're always hurt. They're always on the edge of being injured. So I'd be like, okay, we need to spend some serious time on injury prevention. Injury prevention is good quality strength and conditioning. So spend your time in that particular area. I would be like, do you, you know, if you're on the court three or four hours a week, I'd be like, okay, zero steady state cardio, none. Don't even bother with it. Take that out of the picture completely. And, uh, and put that focus on just on a well-designed, you mentioned new functional training for sports. I don't like, you know, not necessarily here to push my own book, but just go look at the book. I mean, it lays it out so incredibly simply for people. Here's what you do for foam rolling, here's what you do for stretching, here's what you do for dynamic warm up. here's what you do for strength training. You know, strength training is basically, you know, we always talk about push, pull, legs, core, stay out of the machines. It's, you know, with so many things we talk about the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid, don't, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just got to be able to spin it. Love it, Mike. Um, I, I know we're running long time, so I'll just ask a couple more questions. Uh, 
if I can. Um, one thing you mentioned, uh, I know you mentioned foam rolling a couple of times uh, before uh, as a warm up, uh, as part of a warm up. So I was wondering, do you use that mostly as a warm up? Like I was wondering uh, how often you do that, uh, you know, after or for your athletes after they uh, exercise and, and also just in general, like your recovery protocols for athletes. No, we don't generally do it. If someone wants to do it after and it makes them feel better, I'm all for it. But I, I feel like there's, again, um, uh, you know, I love these old analogies, but I feel like that's, you know, closing the barn doors after the cows got out. Mm. Like, I want to get you ready. I don't want, I don't want to help you recover. I want to help you prepare. Mm, because it. if I help you prepare, there's a much lower chance that you're going to get injured. But if you're not properly prepared and then you go play, and then I think, oh, here's some things we can do after. It's like, well, that's no good. You know, I already let you start in the wrong state, and then I let you do too much, and then I'm going to try to find some way to compensate for that after the fact. I would much rather look at this and think I would rather the preparation process is better mm -hmm. than the uh, – recuperation process is better. Gotcha. Great stuff. A uh, quick question about core strength. I mean, I, I've heard some people say, well, you know, if you're deadlifting, squatting, et cetera, you're already working your core. So I was wondering how important it is to have core specific training in, in your workouts. I would say it's highly, 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 highly important okay. because I think that's, I think when people say if you're squatting and deadlifting, you've get enough core training. I think that's one of the dumbest things that people can say, because again, it indicates a lack of understanding of this idea of functional anatomy. Because if I put you on one foot, which is tennis, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that I'm doing, you know, serving, whatever, you know, ground strokes, you know, I'm, I'm transferring from foot to foot, but it's going to be not, I'd say reasonably rare that someone's going to be standing there in a parallel two foot stance, returning that shot but there's going to be much more situations where somebody's going to be using their core musculature when they're in more of a unilateral type situation. Yeah. And that's clearly the same situation in the weight room. So squatting and deadlifting will not impact core muscles in the way that they need to be impacted for a, a sports skill. Because even if you think about, even if you were in a kind of parallel stance, returning a, uh, a forehand or a backhand in tennis, you're now in bilateral stance, but you're using your core musculature in a rotational manner, which again is not happening in squatting or deadlifting. All they've got to be is stabilizers there. So there's just not a lot of parallel to squatting and deadlifting. So I think the people who say that are generally people who are involved in sports like powerlifting or Olympic lifting, mm -hmm. and they don't have to worry about people who are moving. Got it. it. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I was reading a, a article where you you kind of broke down the myths about somebody who said that uh, one legged training was like worthless. And I really enjoyed that one. Uh, so I'm going to link that as well. Um, so so Mike, uh, where can we learn more about uh, Mike Boyle strength and conditioning, and perhaps you know uh, check it out and and uh, work out there? All right, I'll give you a couple of things. If you actually like, if you live, you know, in north of Boston area and you want to train at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, you can go to bodybyboyle.com, and that's fairly easy to, you know, get the phone number and join a group or set up a personal training session or whatever it is. If you think, hey, I want to know more about what Mike Boyle thinks and I want to spend more time interacting with Mike Boyle, we have a website called strengthcoach.com, which is pretty much that in terms of it's the day to day kind of 
question and answer format type stuff, articles, all these things that we put up. And that's a paid website, so someone would have to go there and become a member. Uh, I'm on Twitter at mboyle1959. I'm a big Twitter person. I love Twitter. I'm getting better with my Instagram, which is Michael underscore Boyle 1959. So I, I'm I'm pretty active from a social media standpoint too. So that's a bunch of places where people can find me. Awesome. Love it, Mike. You got to get those Instagram stories running, man. <laughs> um, but uh, awesome, Mike. So I just close real quick with my question I always ask, which is, uh, in your case, what is one key tip you can give us to help us improve our tennis fitness? I guess if you said one key tip I could give you to improve your tennis fitness, it would be one, do a better job of warming up. Do not go on the court without warming up. Do not walk out with a tennis racket and start hitting tennis balls. That would be the number one thing I would tell somebody who was an avid tennis player because if someone looked at me and said, what's the big mistake? I would tell you that's what it is. When I see people and talk to people, you realize that's where the problem, when I was working for the Red Sox, that was one of the things that we tried to get players to stop doing players and put their stuff on and go in the batting cage and start hitting. And I begged, I mean, I begged, implored these guys, please, just come in, foam roll, stretch, warm up. And we went that spring training year, my first year, we had zero oblique strains in uh, in spring training. And the the second year that I was there, the first year I came, we had 11 disabled list players starting the season when I first got there. The next year we had zero. Wow. And I really believe a lot of that was just getting them. It's just respecting your body. You know, you think about the idea – if you said to somebody, well, what I want you to do is go out, start the car up, get out of the driveway as fast as you can and floor it. <laughs> they would look at you and think, that's probably not good for the car. Yeah. You know, but but we treat our car better than ourselves, right? In terms yeah. of not being able to, like, okay, take your time, let it warm up. You know, when you get out, don't stomp the gas. And really, it's 10, 15 minutes a day. Yeah. That's it. And uh, injury prevention, better performance. I encourage all of you to please rewind this and re-listen to that answer a couple of times because um, we just don't do it enough. Uh, Mike, uh, really appreciate it. It was, it was great to speak to you and uh, keep up the amazing work that you're doing and highly encourage everybody to, to check out uh, all the work that you're doing. And we'll have all the, the links uh, in the show notes page for this episode. So, Mike, thanks a lot and uh, have a wonderful day. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Mike. All the best. All right. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach Mike Boyle. Uh, you'll definitely want to check out uh, all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode, and you can definitely find all of those episodes, or I'm sorry, all of those resources at tennisfiles.com slash 136 for episode 136. And, uh, you know, you want to check out strengthcoach.com and Mike's book, New Functional Training for Sports, and also the articles we mentioned uh, and so forth. So I really hope you enjoyed that one. I also really would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Falls podcast. And you'll find that that is also advantageous to you because then all of the episodes that I publish, as soon as they're published, they will be pushed straight into the device of your choice that you used to listen to the show. And it would also push the show up the rankings so that more people would see it easier. So that's always nice for everybody. Um, I'd also like to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show, which is, always make a total effort even when the odds are against you. 
and that's by Arnold Palmer, a great one. And I also just want to reiterate what Mike said, which is by having or by instituting a proper dynamic warm up, you can really, really enhance your game uh, pretty much immediately because obviously your body will be primed and ready to play. And then by doing that, you also reduce injuries. And I think, you know, if there's a lot of takeaways from this episode, but if anything, uh, and this is, you know, that's the key, the one key tip that, that Mike mentioned is to get in that warm up, you know, get to the courts or to the facility on time. And I mean, you know, I'll be the first to say that I struggled with, with getting to places, you know, on time too. Some of us have that issue, right? But it's really important you have to keep the whys in mind, which is if you really want to maximize your performance and minimize the risk of injury and feel better, then you want to get that proper warm-up in. All right, well, thanks a lot for listening and for uh, your support of the show. Uh, it's, it's always great to hear from you. I was actually emailing, uh, I believe it was Chris, who uh, we were talking about maybe him joining my team and so forth, and then he said, wait, are you that podcast guy? And uh, I first replied, what the hell is Tennis Files? This is a joke. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's really cool to hear from you all. And, you know, email me whenever you like. I will say that at, at these days, I'm super busy with preparing for Tennis Summit 2020, which is the fourth year of the summit. And that's going to be in late April. And I'm rounding out, rounding up a lot of really cool and amazing coaches again, um, just, you know, give you a sneak peek. People like Paul Anacone, who coached Roger Federer and Pete Sampras, Gigi Fernandez, 17-time Grand Slam champ. Uh, we've got all the amazing uh, coaches who are lodged in the, the online space as well, primarily like uh, Will Hamilton from Fuzziola Balls and Ian Westerman from Essential Tennis. Uh, I've got Greg Lesur from Online Tennis Instruction. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of people. Also, uh, we added Louis Caillé, who's just a master at, at, at coaching doubles, and his coach Jamie Murray. So, yeah, just a ton of people. It's going to be over 30 for sure, and it's I'm going to give you a heads up about that, uh, you know, throughout the next couple months until it happens. And if you want to learn more about that, and if you want to be the first to know about what is going on with that. Uh, just go to tennisfiles.com and uh, sign up for the newsletter there. You also get a free ebook, The Building Blocks of Tennis Success. I'm also actually working on another ebook for you that I think you'll really enjoy um, that uh, I'll email you about if you're on the list. But in any case, uh, thanks again so much for the support. I really love doing the show. And I mean, it's really the only way that I would be able to speak at length with such amazing experts like like Mike. And uh, thanks again for him for, for coming on the show. You know, just uh, stay grateful, uh, you know, no matter what's happening in your tennis game or whatnot. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I was listening to, I think it was, uh, it was either Tony Robbins or Dean Graziosi, but they were saying that even the, the people who are the poorest in the U.S. are, uh, are in the top percentile of, of uh, people in terms of like, you know, how well off they are in the whole world. And I mean, I just basically say this to say that no matter what's going on, you, you, there's, there are things to be grateful for. And, uh, you know, if you lose a tennis match, I mean, that's definitely very low on the totem pole of, 
of uh, what's really important out there. So, I mean, just use that to drive you. I mean, I've been, I was on a, a few match losing streak actually, um, but you know, I just turned to um, being grateful for being able to play the game and for having the opportunity to improve my game and to, to just constantly like seek out um, a great network of people and the proper resources, like Mike said, and uh, that's the opportunity to improve and come back stronger. So keep it positive out there, keep it grateful, and we will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Maribond signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.